I'm Press Gazette editor Dominic Onsford, and welcome to our third fortnightly Journalism Matters podcast. For this edition, I'm talking to security reporter Robert Verkake, the only journalist to have met teenage misfit turned world's most wanted terrorist, Mohamed Mwazi. He's also the author of a book about Mwazi called Jihadi John, The Making of a Terrorist. It was Feb 2000, and, uh, or Feb last year, that I realised I'd met him through these, uh, the release of emails that confirmed it. One of them was written by me to him, saying, um, good to see you yesterday, Mohammed. You know, and that was when the, the penny dropped. Because people were telling me, people from Cage were saying that you, you, you know, we introduced him to a journalist from The Independent, and I was, and I was thinking, because I'd written about him before, yeah. that it wasn't him. I hadn't met him. I was, I was thinking that I'd just written his story out previously under a, a pseudonym. But once that email dropped, it suddenly all came to place, and I was able to search all my other email um, archives, and I came up with a load of uh, correspondence. And anyway, that's how I met him. That's how I knew I met him. Yeah. So the book project then followed from there. So I tried. I wanted his story to be a story about not just him, but he was one of 12 young Muslim men I'd met over that period, over about an 18-month period, who all had problems with the security services. And half of them went on to join terror groups. Obviously, the very worst of the worst was Mwazi, who became a psychopathic killer. So I wanted to know... The story I wanted out there and people have to decide whether they've achieved that, is how do these men, these, these, these um, seemingly friendly, polite um, young men become terrorists? You know, what is the process? What should the um, British state do to stop them? Um, and what lessons can be learned? So... Although I'd met 12, and they're all in the book, Mwazi obviously is the most interesting because he's the most horrific character, as it turned out. So getting that, get to, so selling the story of Mwazi was quite easy. Yeah. You know, people were obviously interested in a book about Mwazi, but I wanted it to be about a generation of, of Muslim men who felt disenfranchised, alienated by the state. And at the point where you were, um, uh, when you first met him, and he was sort of saying, you know, purporting to be sort of persecuted by the security services, do you think he was a sort of, uh, you know, a very practised liar at that point, or do you think at that, at that point it was before he'd become properly radicalised, or, you know, would do you think you would take, you know, we'd really sense taken in by him at some point, or, or what do you think? It's possible. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I only saw yeah. a side to yeah. him that he wanted me to see. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. But his profile was matched. He wasn't the first guy I'd met who was... In fact, his story never got published. He wasn't the first guy I'd met who was complaining about problems with the security services. And he didn't seem very different from some of the other um, British Muslim men. Not all of them um, extremists, just just troubled. So, But it's also clear that he was involved in, when, when I met him, he was involved in a network of um, Islamist extremists in West London. And they were already um, 
you know, fairly advanced in their um, terrorism. So, what he was telling me, and what he was actually doing, yeah, there might have been a dislocation, but yeah, very few people who uh, committed terrorism, you know, especially if they're in sort of advanced stages of terrorism, go try and speak to the media about <laughs> problems they're having with fiancés and um, security services, which is what he was mostly worried about. Yeah. What were the conclusions you've drawn about, um, um, if, if you have done, about what can change to kind of change the climate in which these sort of guys, are, if, if anything can be done? I think the, the, the main conclusion I came to was that we need to set up some sort of um, process whereby they can they can um, explore their grievances properly. So a space in which they can explore their grievances. I've called it a, a sort of um, extremism ombudsman. So you've got all these different people. We've all got sort of different reasons for, 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 for wanting to explore their Islamic identities or even you know, look at, understand extremism. So at the moment, if you've got a problem, you either go to the... In- the Investigatory Powers Tribunal, uh, your MP, me, or you know the media, yeah. or Cage, or a group like Cage, and Investigatory Powers Tribunal. You know, Fifteen years, not one, well, one. I think the Snowden case was the first one that they found against um, security services. But in terms of an individual complaint, I don't think anyone's ever. Mm. So there's a lack of credibility, a lack of confidence in that system. Cage obviously got their own agenda, you know. And journalists, it's just not it's not the it's just not the right forum, I don't think. We need something. We need something else. We need someone. I think we need a, an individual like an imam or a, someone who's trusted by the security services and the Muslim community who can act as a go-between and perhaps settle these grievances when they are you know, genuine grievances, not when people are being rightly investigated. Yeah. What did you think about the, um, the, uh, the background to how, how he came out? There was a bit of a um, tussle, wasn't there, between yeah. the BBC who, Washington Post. who put a tweet out but they didn't have the story and then a few minutes later the Washington Post had the whole story and there was a kind of, I think the BBC is still trying to claim credit for it. Yeah. So, on. Yeah. I mean, you know... What, what, I've what, dealt what, with that in the book, actually. It's quite a big uh, <laughs> section on uh, the dust that I gave the benefit of the doubt to the BBC. Because <laughs> they were first, but not necessarily with all the, with all the story, yeah. I mean, it's quite... It was, it, I, was, I was told the story from the BBC's point of view. And it, it was, it's a fascinating story about, you know, how you can... Um, be late to a story and, and still get on top of it. And you know, Ali was sending people to the Mwazi family's house and how they were ringing up um, Director General, getting him, trying to get him to um, give permission to go live. Right. You know? And he was in a, in a meeting in Northern Ireland. Obviously, you know, the Washington Post did most of the legwork. They, I mean, they, they had it before BBC. They just um, didn't go with it. You know, they thought they had a bit more time, um, and BBC would uh, caught up with them. I mean, they, the the way the name was released, I think, is interesting. I mean, was it a deliberate 
because it came, didn't come from security service, it came from the cabinet office and from, um, I don't know, uh, Pentagon maybe. Yeah. So it's interesting that the cabinet was prepared to confirm who it was and so were the Americans around the same time. Yeah. Was, he, was, he, was it a deliberate way of putting pressure on Mwazi? No, sort of. Yeah, climbing around reporting terror is quite um, difficult, isn't it? Mm. Legally difficult. Mm. I mean, what, how do you how do you um, um, you know handle that? Because the uh, I think under the Terrorism Act, if you're a journalist and you speak to somebody you suspect of being a terrorist and you don't pass that information on, mm. you're actually committing yeah. an offence yourself, aren't you? And there's, there's there's all sorts there's all sorts of kind of things in that area. Where got, I mean, is it, is it, what are the challenges for? I think that's. I think we're in a very difficult you know, climate at the moment. Sort of chilling effect now. Where, yeah, under terrorism act. When I was writing the book, you know, I was half expecting a knock on the door. Um, you know, before it was published or just after it was published, because it's a very grey area. Do you remember when, even when Mwazi, when Mwazi was carrying out his beheadings? Um, I th- yeah, Bernard Hogan Howe released. Uh, a bit of advice to the public, but including journalists, which was if you download these videos, you're committing a terrorist offence. Well, that's putting journalists in a very difficult position, isn't it? Mm. I mean, if we can't see what um, these terrorist acts are, how are we supposed to report on them? So that was chilling. But, um, you know, lo- lots, lots of Lots of Islamic states, um, you know, propaganda is obviously through social media, and it's made it, for the first time, possible to speak directly to terrorists, which is a whole new um, moment, isn't it? A whole new part of um, reporting in this country, and you know, one or two journalists have been picked up just for doing that because. Something you never know. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know who you're speaking to most of the time, and you don't know why there's a danger posed by speaking to them. So there was a guy from Newsnight, Secunda. He he had his he was uh, he had his laptop taken course, yeah. this year, last year was it last last yeah, year? Yeah. But there's also uh, there's also a problem with um, journalists being approached by the security service to. Work for them. Do you remember Channel Four guy, Jamal Osmond? Oh yeah. So he's he's spoken about this. Uh, it was a couple of years ago. He said he'd been approached by the security service and told that if he didn't work for them, then he could be threatened. He was threatened with losing his passport. You know, and they were offering him money, houses even. So. So, I mean, and I think that that's crossing a line. <coughs> Especially as journalists, as we've seen in Syria, are you know, target number one. Yeah. If the, if, and, and if the security services are asking, journal, approaching journalists to work for them in that this way, then, you know, Islamic State will see that. And other terrorist groups, or other other... Um, you know, moderate uh, Islamic groups will see that. 
And what about the dangers, um, just in terms of like just chilling the kind of um, level of knowledge and debate that we have around the issues? I mean, there because um, uh, the fact that a journalist can be arrested, there's also the uh, fact that anything you, which any information which you're given to in confidence, is very difficult for you to protect, isn't it, from the security service? They can, as you say, come around to your house and take your notebooks, your laptop. laptop yeah, your absolutely. It's, it's worrying, isn't it? <laughs> because. You know, it's, what do you keep on your laptop now? You know, where where do you, do you you know, how do you identify people? Um, how far removed are you from the story? Because that it's crucial. You know, you can if you say you've got a source, and that and the information you then tell has something bearing on the terrorism or in, in, intelligence, then you can expect a knock on the door. Uh, what, what sort of precautions do you have to take? Because I mean, um, uh, we sort of, well, we know from Snowden and also from uh, stuff that the Met Police have been up to that the very broad ranging sort of, mm. the sort of stuff, yeah. the sort of surveillance which goes on a journalist. I mean, uh, do, you, do you have to make, take a certain amount of precautions yourself uh, in terms of when you're contacting people and so on? Do you do it? Yeah, I assume that everything on. Everything I do on the telephone, everything I do on the, the computer, can be. Um, it's available, should we say? Yeah. yeah. I think you have to just assume that, and then from that basis, you then decide how you um, make notes and how you write things. What are your thoughts about the whole, um, you know, surveillance debate? Because I mean, um, obviously, got the sleepers charter coming up. Mm. I don't know what it's called, craft investigatory. Powers bill. And I guess you're someone who can see the uh, the benefits of surveillance in terms of you know uh, they've been quite effective, haven't they, at highlighting um, extremists and well, keep, yeah, keeping tabs on them. Seven plots, haven't they, that they've disrupted? Versus the uh, you know the, the flip side of that, you know, space being used against big rock terrorists, you know, being journalists trying to find stuff out. I mean, what, what, are you only thoughts about where the sort of balance. Very, I think it's very finely balanced. Yeah. Very finely balanced. I think even the, I think even during the um, Snowden disclosures, even the Guardian's newsroom was divided about, you know, is this in the national interest or is it not in the national interest? I think there was there were even the Guardian, you know, because is, he a tra- is Snowden a traitor or a, um, you know, a, a freedom fighter or you know, champion of? Free speech, so it's delicate, delicately balanced. On, I'd say that uh, in terms of what Snowden's done, it's stimulated a debate, and obviously, you know, we've got you know legislation is coming through which is, may not have happened had it not been for for Snowden. So I think it's still finely balanced, but um, journalists, it's important that journalists continue to battle on. Yeah, is there, is there um, a danger that People just are, you know, people aren't as all journalists, and we're just mm. living ignorance. Yeah, <laughs> I think maybe don't you think that if you combine, you know, the post Leveson um, and the, the counter-terrorism chilling effect, you know, that's quite a a powerful um, disincentive to engage with the media because either way you're going to prison. I mean, all the perception is, and the perception is worse than the reality, probably. 
but it doesn't matter because if people aren't speaking to journalists, then we don't know what's going. We don't. We know barely. You know, we know very little about what's going on anyway. So you know, if police officers aren't talking to us. Um, civil servants aren't talking to us. Um, if you know, security sources stop talking to us. Um, you know, there's a huge vacuum of information. Have you noticed a, um, a difference, like post Levinson, in terms of the? the uh, yeah, you know, you, you, people don't talk to you. You know, people, civil servants, you know, Whitehall officials who used to you know, feel comfortable sitting down and chatting about stuff, rather not take the risk, even if there's no, there is no risk, the perception of the risk means they don't have those conversations anymore. So you've got to find other ways of getting the information. And I suppose, to be fair, the risk is horrendous for them now, isn't it? The, you know, even, yeah. even if there's no money changing hands, no drinks bought, nothing, you could, they could still be out there, couldn't they? Yeah. And yeah. If, it's not, if, it's not, if, you, if the meeting hasn't gone down in the, uh, you know, the Met Register or the Civil Service Register, and when it, as soon as it goes down, then it just leads to more questions. Since the problems with Iraq and the relationship to the media and, uh, um, should we say, Whitehall, there's not a there's not an overt sort of briefing of journalists. I mean, there's in terms of operations. I mean, on the on the so-called Snoopers Charter, obviously they're going to you know they'll state their case, which is fine. You'd expect them to. We hear that through the Home Office anyway. But I think that like all other media or journalist government relations, it's um, much cooler than it has been you know, for a number of reasons that we've just discussed. But I don't think the security services are any worse than anyone else. That's the thing. In fact, I'd say they're worse. The next Press Gazette Journalism Matters podcast will be available to download in two weeks' time.